Hello and welcome to episode 204 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm delighted that today's story was selected and co-written by Patreon supporter Marcus H. It's an intriguing story from Ilford, East London. One that, like me, you may have heard of, but were not fully aware of the details. But first, you've probably seen that the original CrimeCon is coming to London in June next year. I'll be there and available all weekend for beer. You're round, obviously. So it'd be awesome to see you there too. Just head to crimecon.co.uk and use the code UKTC for your discount. I hope further down the line to be able to offer some free tickets to my Patreon supporters. And by the way, if you support me on Patreon with a new annual subscription, for a limited time you'll get two months free. Just head to patreon.com slash a UK true crime. And talking of Patreon, before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters of this exclusive club, but especially this week's new members. That is Judy Bloomberg, Ian Horrocks, Mandy Nicholson, Steve Davison, Connie Jones, Claire O'Mara, and welcome back to Bridget Braund. This podcast is sponsored by debut crime writer Catherine Yaff. Catherine launched her new novel, The Lies She Told, on Thursday last week to much acclaim. With over 45 star reviews, The Lies She Told is a psychological crime thriller set in the Highlands of Scotland. Kate has escaped from an abusive relationship and starts a new life with her son Joe. But when somebody from Kate's past appears, he threatens to systematically and brutally destroy everything she has worked so hard to achieve. Just how far will she go? to keep her liar secret. Just search on Amazon for Catherine Yaff, that's Y-A-F-F-E, and buy the lies she told in paperback or Kindle today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 2020 has been a tough year for many of us, and we are struggling, some of us, in certain parts of our lives. For me, it's been finding the right balance of spending time at work, and with family, and podcasting, and worrying that I'm failing in all of them. Whatever is interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Let's be clear, it's not self-help, it is professional counselling in a safe and private online environment. There'll be no more sitting around in those unwelcoming waiting rooms, and you don't want to wait around, do you, once you've made the decision to go ahead, so you can start tomorrow, and schedule weekly phone, video sessions, and contact your counsellor at any time. What's more, it's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and it's available worldwide. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash UK. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash UK. So let's briefly set some context for today's events and play the guess the month and the year game. You love it. Number one in the UK charts was Ariana Grande with Thank You, Next. A tribute to my most recent entry for a podcast award. Kane Brown was top of the US charts of Experiment. And in the Australian album charts, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper were in the top spot with the soundtrack to A Star Is Born. In the news this month, the Big Brother reality show aired its last episode in the UK on Channel 5, having run since 2000. Oh, so many highlights, aren't there? But 
None I can quite think of off the top of my head. An ex-Marine opened fire at a bar in Thousand Oaks, California, shooting dead 13 people, including a police officer and himself. The Democratic Republic of Congo announced its worst ever outbreak of Ebola, with 198 deaths. An American missionary, John Allen Chow, was killed on the Forbidden North Sentinel Island in the Bay of Bengal by one of the world's most isolated tribes. And in the UK, we celebrated 100 years of the end of the First World War. Did you guess the month and year? It was November 2018. So on to today's story from Ilford in East London. It's a place I know really well, as a friend of mine owned a pub there when I worked in nearby Barking straight after university. So we had some great nights, afternoons, lunch times, even some good mornings there. And every time I drive past on the A12, I think fondly of the good times. Sana Mohammed's parents arranged her marriage in Mauritius when she was just 15, and on her 16th birthday the ceremony took place. The man they chose for her husband was twice her age. It was 30-year-old Ramanoj Anmathalagudu, known as Ram. The couple settled in Ilford, but although they went on to have three children together, their marriage wasn't a happy one. And the relationship ended in 2012 when Sana broke her ankle when jumping from an upstairs window. She was terrified that Ram would hurt her as he was standing in the garden staring at her as he sharpened knives. But although the marriage was finished for Sana, Ram found it hard to accept this. And there was another incident in 2013 when Sana accused Ram of attacking her and attempting to strangle her. Although the case went to court, Ram was acquitted on the judge's direction of a charge of attempted strangulation under the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861. Meanwhile, Sana met a man she fell in love with and married, Imtiaz Mohammed, who had been the person who decorated the kitchen when Sana was married to Ram. The couple went on to have two children together, But as they tried to build their life and their future, Ram was increasingly being an issue for them, making life difficult for the children and acting often in a worrying manner. Sana successfully filed for an emergency emergency non-molestation order, which barred Ram from coming within 100 metres of the family home, contacting Sana directly, and he was not allowed to threaten or intimidate the three children that they had together. And this order was still in place when we pick up the story in November 2018. By now, Sana's children with Ram were aged 18, 14 and 12, and her two children with Imchaz were 5 and 2. And Sana was eight months pregnant with their third child, and the couple excitedly were looking forward to the new arrival to their family. But although there was an order in place with Sana's ex-husband Ram, he was still causing problems. But they were unaware that Ram was in a particularly dark place and taking revenge on the couple was Ram's main priority in his life. Following the divorce from Sana, Ram had gone downhill rapidly. He left his job as a site manager at Newham General Hospital due to the stress of his current situation and he slept rough as he made plans about just what he would do to repay the couple for what he perceived they had done to him. 
he began carrying out surveillance on the family home in the normal residential area of Applegarth Drive. He noted all the comings and goings of the family in a notebook. And more disturbingly, he began to stash weapons near the family home. In March 2018, one of the couple's neighbours had found two crossbows, which Ram had bought online for about £250 each. The weapons were removed, but unbeknown to the couple, they were replaced with other weapons by Ram. He was preparing for the Day of Judgment, when those who had wronged him would pay the penalty for their actions. The 12th of November was just a normal morning for the couple. At around 7am, Sana was preparing dinner for the evening, and Imchaz was getting on with his normal morning jobs, and the children were all around upstairs. What they didn't know is that Ram had spent the night sleeping in the garden shed, with the two new crossbows, bolts, a knife, duct tape, cable ties, and a hammer that he had bought and stored there. Imchaz wandered down the garden to store a cardboard box, as he had done so many times before, Then as he opened the door to the shed, he was greeted with the sight of Ram pointing a crossbow at him. Imtiaz ran back down the garden and into the house and straight through the front door onto the street, shouting at Sana to join him. But Sana, she ran up the stairs intuitively towards her children. But as she did so, there was a noise and she was hit by an arrow from the crossbow, which entered her body at her hip and caused terrible damage to the inside of her body before piercing her heart. Sana let out a piercing scream, and Imchaz, who was now back inside the house, was screaming too. Then seeing that Ram had a second loaded crossbow on his shoulder, he feared the next arrow was heading for him. Ram's oldest children rushed in to disarm their father, while another child called the police. And as they did so, 51-year-old Ram said, it would have been much easier if you guys weren't here, like I would have done it. Sana was still alive but she needed urgent medical attention following being shot by the 18-inch bolt. An ambulance rushed Sana to a hospital in East London where just hours later, at 11am, she was pronounced dead. Sana was just 35 years old. Miraculously, the bolt from the crossbow had narrowly missed the unborn baby and medics managed to save the baby boy by performing an emergency caesarean section. The baby was named Ibrahim and after the events of that normal November morning was one of six children who no longer had a mum to hug. At the police station, Ram told detectives that he'd not realised that his ex-wife had been hit by a bolt from the crossbow until one of his children had told him. And when he was told the bolt had narrowly avoided killing her unborn baby, Ram commented, well, that's unfortunate. This attitude made his later explanation for the events of the morning hard to believe. He said he had no intention of hurting anybody, but just wanted to talk to Sana's new husband over the treatment that his daughter was going through. He said that he was concerned that the 12-year-old was forced to pray in the Islamic faith, and she didn't want to. She was forced to eat halal food, and she wasn't allowed to wear European clothes. He said she was also being prevented from celebrating occasions, including Christmas and Halloween. Ram continued that although the restraining order prevented him from contacting his daughter, he had spoken to her one day on the way to school, and as a father he could sense that what his daughter was saying to him was, Help me daddy.
The night before the killing, Ram told how he spent more than two hours moving equipment into the garden shed where he then slept. Detectives were puzzled. If his story, his explanation was true, they asked him why he didn't just knock on the door the next day to discuss his concerns about his daughter. I couldn't, Ram said. I was scared of Imchaz as well. He was a big man. The crossbows were basically a deterrent so I didn't get attacked. He said, Sana and Imchaz were on the stairs. I just wanted them to stop. I thought if I hit the banister, they would hear the noise and stop. But while I was checking the safety catch, the next thing I know, there was a bang. When the crossbow had been discharged, I felt defenceless. So the next thing I did was go back to the kitchen and get the other one, he added. He denied that he'd been stockpiling weapons, but said that he'd planned to take the crossbows to his native Mauritius so that he could go hunting with his brother. But again, detectives struggled with this story. Ram admitted that he'd not checked out how much it would have cost to post the items abroad ahead of his visit, or whether when he brought the crossbows, the retailers could have sent them directly. Ram didn't deny that he had written in a notebook about the family's comings and goings, but he said this wasn't done so he knew when his children would not be at home during an attack, but had been created solely so that he would know when he might bump into his children as they went to school. Speaking about his former wife, he said he felt, and I quote, really, really distressed at the thought that she got hurt because of me. Sana's husband told detectives more about the horror of the day that he saw his wife murdered. He told how the bolt entered his wife's body so he could just see the tip of it. Adding about Ram, he didn't waste a second. He seemed like he'd had training. When he was coming in the corridor, I was in front of him, but he was not looking at me. He was focused on her. When she got an arrow, she just screamed. I was thinking, what is happening? I was screaming for her. One particularly interesting point in this case that was pointed out to me by patron supporter Marcus was that detectives used a super recognizer to help them establish that Ram had been around the area and so been pre-planning the attack. I don't know about you, but I'd never heard of a super recognizer before, but the term has been around since 2009 and describes someone who can remember more than 80% of the people they see against an average for maybe you and me of 20% or so. Just why approximately 1% of the population have this ability is unclear, but the benefits for police investigations are apparent. In this case, detectives used super recognizer Kelly Hearsey to analyze CCTV from a variety of sources over a number of 24-hour periods to establish just how much RAM was in the area. Kelly asked first of all to see video of the footage of RAM coming into custody and a mugshot, so she had an updated image of him and then she went to work. Kelly spotted Ram in the area a massive 83 times, and she was able to unlock new evidence of the murder kit that Ram had stashed in a graveyard not far from the house, and she traced him bringing the gear into the shed in Sana's garden. Detectives were able to match this murder kit with the stash of two crossbows found by the neighbour nearby a year previously and this demonstrated that the attack had been planned for a considerable amount of time. The jury in Ram's first trial was discharged after a juror raised an issue of psychiatric illness, despite the judge urging the jury not to speculate 
and that no evidence was due to be heard about Ram's mental state. At his second trial, the jury didn't believe Ram's story and he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life with a minimum of 33 years in jail, meaning it's likely he'll never be released. The judge described the killing of Sana as a brutal and evil attack, making it clear that if her children not been present, then he'd have shot her new husband too. He told Ram, You've carefully planned this attack. You loaded two crossbows, and I'm entirely satisfied you intended attack on Sana and then Imshaz. One can only assume that you were jealous of their life together, and the fact that they had formed a loving bond between themselves and with your children. The judge said the crossbows and bolts the defendant acquired did not need a license and could be bought online, adding, as is shown by events that followed, they can be used to devastating effect to kill. Many, I'm sure, will find the ease with which some items are available deeply concerning. It is for others to consider whether these items should be controlled and require a license for ownership. After the trial, the CPS said, This was a cold-blooded and calculated execution. Ram was armed with a crossbow when he launched a deliberate attack on his heavily pregnant former partner. He claimed he shot her by accident, but the CPS was able to prevent evidence that clearly showed he had planned the killing for up to a year in advance by purchasing weapons and carrying out surveillance on the family home. And Sana's husband, understandably, kept thinking about what could have happened differently on the day Sana was murdered. He said, If at any stage I could have stood up to him, I could have saved Sana. If only I closed the kitchen door behind me, then she would have been saved. Or if I just spoke to Ram, maybe then she could have been saved. My mind, my brain didn't work that time. That's the regret I'm living with. That's why I went into depression afterwards. It's the biggest regret of my life. She was my soulmate. She was everything to me. She was my companion, my friend. Life was so lovely. He said of Sana, she was a very outgoing and bubbly type of person, very friendly, talkative and always made me laugh. She was a very family-orientated woman who brought up our kids while I went to work. She had strong family values and believed children should be greeted by parents and love when they got home from school. We had our future together. We had a very strong bonding with all our kids. Ram has finished everything. We all feel lost now. Ram must have been very jealous of the life that Sana and I had and that we were living a happy life. Sana would always say, Ram does not forgive and forget. He likes to create trouble, no matter if he loses everything. Just briefly, Sana's mum said the loss of her only child has had, I quote, a profound impact on me in my life. I live for my daughter and my grandchildren. She was my entire world. I now feel alone. There are days I do not want to live. I want to hear her voice speak to her on the telephone and I cannot. I want to embrace her to see her beautiful smile and I'll never be able to. My life will never be the same. I now live in constant fear and cannot sleep because I think about what happened to her all the time and of how she suffered. The sadness I feel is overwhelming and constant. Every day I think about how the children will cope without their mum, who was taking good care of them and loving them every day. I always treated Ram as my own son. I always thought of him and his well-being after the separation. It brings me so much pain to know he could be capable of something so hateful and calculated. I cannot forgive him. 
So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's another shocking story, isn't it? I wonder if you were Sana's mum, if you'd be able to forgive Ram. I don't think I would be able to. When I reflect on the story, I keep thinking back to that normal November day, with Sana and her husband in the kitchen, just doing normal things, and then in a split second they were faced with terror and violence. That moment where everything changed, and Sana's natural reaction to protect her children by heading upstairs ultimately cost her her life. And we've heard how her poor husband has been left wondering just what else he could have done. It's so upsetting to hear, I think, as in those situations, none of us know what we could have done. And it means that despite the actual attack being so short, he now has a whole lifetime to ponder on those awful memories and rerun in his mind what could have happened or maybe might have happened if he'd acted differently. It's just an impossible situation for him to face. And then there are the six innocent children who've lost their mum, including Ram's three children, who also need to face up to just what their father did. Although the older children also played a key role in restraining their dad on the day of the attack and calling the police. That action alone probably saved at least one life. And I can't help thinking about Sana's child, Ibrahim, who miraculously survived the attack that left his mum dead. I wonder if after surviving through nothing short of a miracle, he will go on to do great things. I really do hope so. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join almost 43,000 of us at the Facebook group. Thanks again to Patreon supporter Marcus H for making this episode happen. And if you want to choose and co-write an episode, support the show, listen to 48 bonus episodes and see loads more exclusive content, some of it even vaguely interesting, please just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where for a limited time you can also claim your two months free membership. What is there not to like? So that is all for me for today. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the non-award winning 37th most popular true crime podcast in the UK. Until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, I get it, I really, really do. Please stay classy.